Welcome to the Candor Communication Podcast, where we discuss interpersonal communication and all the human stuff that gets in the way. Join us as we learn to get our message across with more courage, clarity, and connection. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Divan. In 1930, an economist made a prediction. His name was John Maynard Keynes. Keynes, as in the founder of Keynesian economic theories, still used today. Keynes predicted that productivity will continue to increase, and by 2030, we would only need to work 15 hours per week. In fact, in his essay, his biggest concern was related to the lack of purpose we will face as a species when we had so much time on our hands. Keynes was right about productivity. For example, a full workday in 1970 can now be done in only one and a half hours. But despite being more productive than ever, we are busier than ever. We work longer hours and feel busier outside of work despite so much of our household activities being automated or outsourced. Where did we go wrong? Why are we so busy? In this episode, we talk to Julie Hyde about the eight types of busy, their root causes, their impacts, and how they can influence how we lead. We discuss how to break free from being busy, with a particular focus on people-pleasing and micromanaging. Julie is the founder of Julie Hyde Consulting. She is a speaker, podcast host, and author of Busy, Take Control, Get Relevant, and Become an Influential Leader. Julie helps organizations to improve their leadership capability. She is passionate about empowering leaders to be powerful role models who lead with their heart and enable others to shine. She also hates the word busy. We hope you enjoy this insightful conversation with Julie Hyde. Hey, Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. When we first spoke over the phone, the first thing I did was say, when you asked me, how am I doing? I didn't say fine. I said, I'm doing well, a bit busy, but I'm doing okay. Yeah. And I find like that's like the standard response for me. It's because I think there's this pressure to not use the word fine anymore when someone asks you how you're doing, because it's just um, so cliched. It doesn't mean anything. Mm. But I've been finding myself replace fine with busy. Mm. And I noticed that I'm not the only one. And even as I said it, because I knew that you've got a book (laughs) about this very topic about being busy. And I was like, even though I knew it, I couldn't help myself. It was such a default reaction. But I guess the question is, like, do you kind of see that as well in terms of the work you're doing, that it's just become a standard response when people are asked, how are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's replaced. I think that we used to say, yeah, I'm fine or I'm good. But now that that has absolutely been replaced with busy and it's become the default, I think, for most people, almost to the point that I think it's one of the most overused words in the (laughs) English language. (laughs) now and it's become a bit of an addiction as well I think in terms of that word busy but it's interesting how we just choose a word that means so little to explain what we're doing and it is interesting uh, when people who know me they know I've written the book they know I'm really passionate about changing the culture of busy and they'll go to I'll ask them how they are and they're like oh yeah but 
productive. Oh, so it's really searching for <laughs> another word to use instead of just defaulting to busy. And I also think it's become a bit of an expectation because it's like, what, you're not busy? Like, how can you not be busy? It's abnormal if you don't respond in that way. So why, why, Julie, do you think we do that? Why do we say that we're busy? Are we really busy? Are we busier today than we were 100 years ago? I have this image in my mind of my great-grandparents having, or even my grandparents, um, having more time um, and being more relaxed and having time for people. And so I've got this image in my head of them being more available. Is it true that we're busier? Mm, I think it it's about perspective with busy and also the perception of time. Like we've all got the same amount of time in a day. We've got 24 hours. We've got 1,440 minutes and 86,400 seconds and people use it very differently. I mean, we can never buy more time. It's not different in terms of gender, culture, <laughs> affluence. But I think busy has definitely morphed in terms of what we feel like we need to be busy doing. I think we've become human doings rather than human beings now. And I think technology has absolutely played an enormous role in this because, you know, in the last however many years, I think 10 or 12 years, you know, we've had the smartphones that have now uh, we're so incredibly connected to our workplace, we can't necessarily leave. It follows us. We're very contactable. And we now have these insights into people's lives that we never necessarily had before through the social media space. So we're seeing what other people are doing and we're seeing these amazing lives that these people apparently have. And it can feed into a bit of um, comparisonitis, if you like. It's like, oh, I'm not doing enough or I'm not, you know, doing enough for my kids. I, I'm not working long enough. I see all these people doing these things and and I'm not doing it. So then I should should do that. So I think technology has played a huge, huge part in that. And I found it really interesting, particularly in 2020, when COVID hit and we were forced out of the office and into our homes, how busy morphed. So no longer were we running around from place to place between meetings. However, we made sure that we were jam-packed with back-to-back Zoom meetings, you know, in terms of in our professional space. So it's just interesting how I think there's just this, this need now that we need to be on and we need to be doing. And we don't necessarily understand the impact of that until something really hits us. And, and do you think that's across the board in terms of all over the world it's like this? Or do you think this is a, a cultural, like specific to certain countries or certain regions where busy has become so culturally accepted? I feel it's more prevalent in the Western world because it was interesting when I ran a, a busy workshop for an organization and there was a guy who'd just come over recently from France. So he'd been with us for about six months. And he shared that he didn't necessarily understand what the word busy meant. And, but he was then, he got swept up in this culture because everyone's using it and, you know, everyone's so busy. So people would ask him back home, how was he? And he'd say busy. And they go, 
what what is this word like what what does that actually mean so it's really interesting that maybe in the European cultures and obviously in places like Sweden where they're very very focused on the whole work-life balance principles over there that it's not so prevalent say in the European culture as it seems to be in our our western world yeah i think our certainly our culture here in australia and um, our western world as you frame it i certainly feel and i think many of us feel this um this busyness impact in fact you know in the last week i've been using the terminology with my my wife you know that we tick the box on certain activities it's almost like we've got this checklist of things to do for the week and we feel satisfied that we've gone tick 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 and achieved all these things that we supposedly had to do and when you refer to the impacts of COVID and going into lockdown and shutting down and things being events being cancelled, all these things that we don't really have to do, but we choose to do, when all that stopped, I certainly felt at some point through that a weight had come off my shoulders. I felt, yeah. wow, this is great. This is a re- so relaxing. And I, th- and, and I think a lot of people probably went through that process thinking, wouldn't it be great to maintain life like this? And then we come out of it and we go back to our madness again. <laughs> Uh, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. As part of a women's network that I run, we had a lot of conversations on Zoom because we, we in Victoria we were in lockdown for a long time. And it was interesting the conversations where people were reconnecting back with their children, like getting to know them better and understanding what their values were. And I suppose becoming more conscious of the time they weren't spending as a family focused and present together Um, and that was absolutely something that they wanted to take with them in terms of the habits that they created while they were locked down eating together putting technology down having conversations you know going out and about doing exercise with the family rather than all being all over the place getting to activities or music lessons or sports or, you know, whatever else we need to do. And I think you're right, Mark, in that we had the best laid plans to take these really positive habits with us that we identified throughout COVID into our post-COVID world. And it hasn't necessarily happened because when we get back to life as normal, we can get swept up into just the business that is. And I was speaking to someone in an organisation only a couple of weeks ago and she pretty flippantly said that her work-life balance strategies that she had in place while she was locked down in COVID have effectively gone out the window. Now, the issue with that is it's now in her conscious mind. Like she, she is aware of that and that is going to become a frustration for her in time because it's like, okay, so I know what I could do and I'm not doing it now. And of course, there's a payoff with that. I've absolutely seen us get sort of swept back into that normality (laughs) and almost this addiction to having to be busy. I wonder if it's related to an addiction to achievement or progress. Because what I'm thinking is like you want to send your kids to the sport, to music, to all these kind of things that's going to give them opportunities, Mm. things that are going to, you know, maybe opportunities that we didn't have or, you know, things that are going to set them up better for the future. They can make friends, they can develop skills. All of these are great things, but it's really, the focus is really on achievement 
as opposed to, like you say, relationships where if you're just home and you actually spend time with your kids and have time for family, that's a very different type of benefit. But I mean, is one better than the other? Why do we have this addiction, do you think, to to achievement? And is that do you think that's one of the reasons that we're so busy? Yeah, it could be. And always wanting to strive to be better. I think it's very different for for you know every individual and what what people are trying to achieve you know while busy is absolutely an addiction and there's a psychologist Leanne Faraday Brash who's written about that in terms of the addictive nature of busy and that it has become a competition it's that you know no you're not busy I'm busy and I'll prove that I'm busier than you so <laughs> Um, but I think it does come back to sometimes we lose sight of what our priorities are and it's just trying to do everything with this scattergun approach thinking yes that's best yes that's best oh well you know Sarah's kids are doing this so perhaps I should think about that I think we can lose sight of what's purposeful and meaningful for us and just get swept up into the shoulds the woulds and coulds do that rather than being really grounded in what is going to work for us. I also think that busy is an absolute mindset. It is a mindset and it's a habit and it's something that can be changed because it's interesting where people identify themselves, I'm a busy mom or I'm a busy entrepreneur or I'm a busy dad. Why? Why does that busy word have to come before who you are? What what are we trying to prove with that? Yeah, I, I, hear, I hear that a lot. In fact, in the last month, the amount of times I, I've heard this almost competitive attitude, you know, where I might feel like I get up at 5 a.m. So because I've got all these things to do and I want to get these things done early in the morning because I'm fresh. And then the amount of people I've heard say, well, you need to get up an hour earlier because I get up at 4 a.m. Um, because if you get up at 4 a.m., then you have a longer day. And why are you going to spend your life asleep? And then some people say, no, I get up at 3 a.m. Because, you know, I've got so many things to do in the early hours of the morning. I achieve so much. And it's, and it's this competition. We don't, we don't need to sleep. Sleep's not important. Yes. And I, and I think that's, that's funny. So what do you think about that argument? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is so interesting. And, again, the competitive nature comes into that. And so sleep is something that seems to be sacrificed thanks to our busyness as well. And there has been research done in that it's a very high percentage and I can't remember if it's 57% or 75%, but it's a seven and a five in there. I think it's 57. 57% of Australian adults don't get enough sleep. And that's as a result of this busy culture. Now, sleep is so important to enable us to perform at our absolute best. It's necessary for our brain health, for our mental health, for our physical health as well. And yet we don't seem to value sleep and what it can give us. Yeah, again, it just goes back into that competitive argument. Oh, well, you know, you, you get up at four. Well, I get up at three and I can just do so much more with that hour while you're sleeping. And then, you know, that feeds back into your mind going, oh, well, maybe I should get up at three. And, and I find with less sleep, you go into the more of that crazier, um, that sporadic mindset of being 
almost beyond busy, almost being out of control that I haven't had enough sleep. I'm not feeling right, but I've got to do all these things. And you do these things perhaps with less thoughts. And it comes back to that question, I think, are you doing the things that are really important to you or are you just doing random things? Yeah. And that's one of the big questions I think we need to answer personally and professionally. Like, what are you busy doing? Is it doing the things that are, again, purposeful and meaningful for you or are you just busy being busy? It's interesting when you ask people, what does busy mean to you? What's the meaning for you? People have different perspectives about it. Some people think busy is a good thing. A lot of people think it's a negative thing and that it creates a lot of overwhelm, a lot of drama. If you think about in situations where you've been busy and you're sitting there, I know for myself and I sit there and I think, oh my God, I'm so busy. And I go into that, into the huffing and puffing and it's like, oh my God, so much drama. And there's so much swirling around in your head and you can lose complete perspective and just dive off and do random things rather than circumventing, you know, that mindset because it's a thought that triggers actions and just sit down. When I sit down and go, okay, what are you busy doing and write it down on paper, what I can see is nowhere near what I've been thinking. So it's like get some perspective, get it down on paper And then you can work it through and plan your way forward. I think for myself, it's often when I hit that overwhelm like stage where there's just so many things coming in that I'm like, I just, I know I'm not going to get to it all. And that's the stress starts to build. And so you're kind of thinking, well, I can work faster. I can work longer. And I noticed myself, it's almost like, like it's very easy for me to become lazy in the sense that. I'm busier, I'm getting through more things, but if those things are not the right things. So for example, it's easy for me to jump in and go through email the email quickly and that, that's my to-do list and I'm trying to get through it all, right? And that's really the lazy thing to do, even though it's going to take me longer and it's going to be harder work, which is measured by most people. I know it's probably not going to be more effective because I'm probably answering things that probably could have waited. I'm probably doing things just to get them off my to-do list, not really to add value, So how do we kind of make that mental shift from being busy, lazy of jumping and doing everything as opposed to choosing what to do? Because I think there is a lot of tension there because part of that means you have to say no to things or you have to push back on things or just ignore things. How do you kind of make that mindset shift? Yeah, and that's a really good question because you talked about the overwhelm And just getting into that space of, I like how you use that, like the lazy busy, it's just randomly going about and doing things and perhaps reverting back to things that are within your comfort zone. I sort of call email answering, responding, cleaning up your inbox. That's a bit of a comfort zone spot where you can feel like you're okay and you're just getting things done. So I think we need to understand with our world how it is, and it's, it's frantic, it's crazy, it's constantly changing. We have pandemics that are thrown in that cha- turn our world upside down. We're always going to be busy, right? There's, I don't think we time ever shows up for anyone, but it, it's having a really good understanding of what our priorities are. And we often go into complete overwhelm when we don't have clarity about what we should be doing when. 
So it's just thinking about all the things that we have on our plate. I think the best thing that I've taught people and also, you know, a strategy that I use for myself, and I'll share the story of a client of mine, Gary, in a minute, is to sit down and understand, okay, get it out of your head, get it on paper and understand what is it that you're actually doing? What are the top three priorities for you? The mind loves to work in three. So it's like, what are the top three things that if I got this done today, this is a massive step forward for me, ensuring that if we have like these huge goals that we're trying to achieve, that we're actually chunking things down into bite-sized tasks as well, because we can move into that space of overwhelm when we've got to do, oh, I've got to do this massive proposal or a pitch, or I've got this huge project that I'm doing. It's like you can't tackle all that at once. So you need to break things down into bite-sized tasks. So I feel like it's just releasing that pressure valve. If you, you know, use the metaphor, it's like just letting the steam out by getting things down on paper. And then you've got some perspective about what you're actually doing. But of course, it's having that awareness around when you go into that strategy of overwhelm. It's it's like having that awareness of, okay, I'm I'm going into this space where I'm thinking I'm busy or it's a feeling. It's like I just feel completely out of control or I'm feeling really, really anxious or I'm really sick. It's understanding what your trigger point is and then circumventing that as soon as you possibly can. And, of course, you get better at that with practice. I still go into my dramatic overwhelm (laughs) space, but I can circumvent it a lot quicker and then get back in control and and get productive. So it's understanding that we're in control of the strategies that we're doing. Yeah, I think that perspective that you talked about of what's most important to you is uh, hits the nail on the head for me. And I was confronted by that uh, one morning talking about getting up super early. One morning I felt that sense of overwhelmed. It was actually during the night. During the night my brain was just on overdrive thinking I've got a thousand things to do. I I haven't even got time to sleep and I can't wait for the morning because in the morning I've just got to get up and go. And this particular morning, and I've got um, five children at home, so I've got lots of activities. So if I don't get up super early and start working, I'm losing valuable quiet time. So this particular morning, I got up super early and I tiptoed through the house, got up to my computer and I opened it really slowly and I started working away and I was on fire. I thought, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to get it so much done in the first, you know, first hour. Within five minutes, I heard, I heard some footsteps coming up the corridor. I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I haven't even had five minutes. I've got a thousand things to do. How's this going to work? So I, I, I don't know what I was thinking, but I decided I'm going to ignore it and keep working. And then um, my daughter, she was about five at the time. She came and sat next to me. And I just felt a bit stressed just by her presence um, because mm. I, I needed to do some work. You know, I love her dearly, but I needed to do some work right now. Anyway, being a child, she started um, touching me and wanting to play with me and climbing on me. And I started to get more agitated and agitated. Um, and then she eventually climbed on my back and I said, look, get off me. Dad's really busy. Anyway, so that didn't work. So then she started pressing the keyboard and my agitation had worked up so much that I turned to her and said, look, Sophia, I haven't got time for this. Mm. And she looked straight back at me with her big brown eyes and she said, I haven't got time for this. <laughs> and as I thought and reflected on that, that was wow. it was one of the most confronting moments I had. Yeah. And it took me a while to come to the realization, but she had a message that I wasn't ready for. Yeah. 
And, and, and the message is exactly what you said. What was important to me was not what was important to her. Yeah. And, you know, what was important to her is it's morning, dad's here, let's play with dad. Yeah. And that, and I think, I think that's why it really uh, hits the nail on the head for me when you talk about understanding what's important to us mm. has a big impact on what we do and how busy we can become. And yeah. I always have this memory of that event early morning of what is important. Oh, what a gift your daughter gave it. It's like that holding the mirror up moment, yeah. isn't it? It's like, oh, wow, okay. And out of the mouth of babes, it's just incredible. That's really interesting because being on the other end of busy isn't necessarily a great message because effectively, as you said, Mark, what we're telling the people on the other end of when we're too busy, you know, I'm sorry, I can't get back to you, I'm too busy, or I haven't um, met this expectation for you because I've been too busy. We're telling people that they're not a priority. That is what we're telling people. And that's not a nice message. And people are getting a little bit sick of it. In line with your story, Mark, I had a woman come up to me after a, a keynote that I did about busy and she shared with me that her daughter her nine-year-old daughter had come up to her and said to her that she was sick of being a technology orphan and the the woman said it was just like a bit of a kick in the gut and she's like what do you mean and she goes you are always on your phone and you're always telling me that you're too busy to spend time with me and I'm sick of being an orphan where she got this language from I don't know but as she said, I was so lucky that she said that because, in, you know, a lot of people don't get that message. And this is if this is what we're role modelling for our future generations, this is something I really think we need to be very conscious of as well. We need to be really conscious of what we're role modelling, both personally and professionally in organisations. So I think we need to be mindful of that perception of busy because I know if people tell me they can't get back to me because they've been busy and I know I've got a radar for it, but it is like a bit of a red rag to a bull. It's like, wow, that's a really bad message. <laughs> so change your language, please. But I think that that's really interesting, right? Because on one hand, we're saying you need to prioritize, right? And so when, say, Mark's with his daughter and someone calls him, it's like, Okay, now I'm busy. I'm, you know, and yes, the the answer is yes. I've got a high priority that I'm dealing with. That's not you. Mm. I mean, is there a nice way to get that message across without, you know, without using busy? Because I know busy is used as an excuse, but mm. in my mind, I've always thought, well, that's a better excuse than saying you're not my top priority right now. I'm doing like to me that just sounds worse than just saying I'm I'm busy right now. Uh, I'll get back to it later. Should we just be direct or should we be less direct? I think it's just being conscious of the impact of our language. So there's there's plenty of other words that we can use rather than just saying, look, I'm busy, I can't do this right now. So if I separate professional and personal, in a professional sense, it was drummed into me in my corporate career because um, we were in um, the retail space. So with clients, it's always they don't want to hear the excuse right? You don't want to hear the excuse. They want to hear the solution. It's like, look, I'm so sorry. I take responsibility. I haven't got back to you. Here's my solution, whatever that might be. What I'm going to do is I'm going to get onto it right now and I'll get back to you within the hour. You'll have your response. You'll have your whatever you need. But it's been really 
conscious of the language because there has been a study done in the US and people are starting to not trust the excuse of busy. So you can use any other excuse like, you know, I'm so sorry, I've been completely out of control or, but if you use the word busy, people are not trusting that anymore. That's also in a professional sense. In a, in a personal sense, I do feel like it can be a little bit easier. It is hard to say no, you know, in a workplace, like I can't do that for you. But in a professional sense, and Mark, with your with your child, who's obviously a, a priority for you, it's just perhaps if you take five minutes to play or do something, but explain, hey, I've got to do this. And in half an hour, I'll be down with you and I'll do whatever you're going to do with a child and then come back. Sometimes our best laid plans are going to be blown out of the water because life happens. Stuff happens. And it's about just having that flexibility and understanding how can I adjust, how can I adapt rather than, you know, the emotions building up and you eventually like blow. How can you do that a little bit differently in situations where if there's, you know, a child tapping on your shoulder, just wanting your attention for a moment, it's like, okay, I've got to stop, (laughs) take time out. It might just be five minutes. Let's diffuse this situation and then I can come back and focus and then I'll be, you know, off doing something else. But it's, I think it's just being conscious of what is important, but also not being so rigid and staunch with our plans. It's just there needs to be some element of flexibility, which I think COVID taught us last year in that we do have to be adaptable in situations. So how do you protect your your calendar, for example, so to get that flexibility? So for example, often I would want to make sure my calendar stays free, but then people just put meetings in it and next minute I know I've got back-to-back meetings all day got no time to actually do any work and just a constant bombard of emails in between as well for additional things that I now need to do or get back to. How do you mm. protect your calendar or kind of reject those requests? You're like, no, I, I don't know if I really should be in this meeting, but I don't necessarily want to offend them. Does this happen to you? How do you deal with that kind of issue? Yeah, well, it used to happen to me in my corporate career. Now, being in my own business, I, I've got a lot more control, if you like, being being the boss. But When demands are coming down the chain and your diary is completely filling up and you do get to that overwhelm space, I do encourage people, communication is really important here, communication up, because it's the same same principle. We cannot do everything all at the same time. So I always encourage people to say, yep, can absolutely do that in terms of referring up, whether it's speaking to your manager, your leader, whoever it is. But, you know, I've got these list of priorities and the timeframes that I need to get this done. So where does this fit in, in terms of what I've got to be doing and in terms of my deliverables? I'm not going to lie, it can be absolutely challenging when you've just got people firing things at you, but there's some point in time when you've got to go, okay, what is my priorities? Where does this fit in? And meetings is a really interesting space because we seem to think like we have to have a meeting for an hour and that everyone has to be in this meeting, even though it may not be productive. So I think asking questions around, you know, if this is this a really good use of my time? Like, do I need to be in this meeting or can I be doing something else productive 
in line with that? And do we have to have a meeting for an hour? Like, why why do we have to do that? (laughs) Why can't it be Mm. half an hour or even 15 minutes or 45? I don't understand the whole principle around it being an hour and then just sitting there and having a big talk fest and quite often there's no outcomes at the end of that hour. So it's been a bit of a waste of time. So meetings are an interesting space in terms of clarifying, okay, so what's the purpose of me being involved in this meeting? Just to add to that, hopefully if you do have a good relationship in terms with your leader or with those around you, that you you do feel like you can put up your hand for help and just say, look, I just need to take five. Can I take five with you and just understand just to make sure what are the priorities that I need to be doing today as opposed to everything being urgent. You know, we get all these urgent requests and these things need to be done now or close of business, but what's urgent? And I think clarifying that's a a bit of a winner too. Yeah, and I'd really want to understand it more from the leader's perspective as well because I I think that often we think that everything is urgent so, for example, when things are coming to me, I feel the pressure to get it all done straight away. And a lot of the pressure is really internal. It's not really coming from our manager or from, you know, it's an, an internal pressure because I'm kind of guessing what they need or what is important and urgent. And, and I think similar to your advice of previously, like just pick three things and get it done. I actually had a good manager that taught me that very early in my career. And I found that very liberating. Because it was my manager mm. saying, just pick three things, get them done. That's better than having 10 things half done that you're never going to finish. And I found it very liberating. Mm. But not many managers might be saying that to their teams. But how do we kind of create that culture or that from a leadership perspective, make it okay for the team to know, okay, these are the things that I need you to work on or what your priorities are so that they don't feel as overwhelmed? Like what can we do as managers and, and leaders? Yeah, as a leader... If I reflect back on when I I led a very large team of people in corporate, I was always very clear in terms of what had to be done and by when. So how much of what by when was my principle that I used to follow? So the team had very, very clear timeframes in terms of what their expectations were and what their deliverables were. And I think that's a key thing in terms of providing that clarity around what is the expectation that you are wanting people to do by a particular time. Because we can be very obscure with our communication sometimes and people don't necessarily understand what's expected of them. So it's like, okay, so do I have to do the whole lot by then or is it just something by then? So it's been really clear and concise with the expectation I think is a big thing. And I think leaders need to get good at reading the room as well in terms of if you're delegating to people, and this is about knowing your team, so knowing them on an individual level and understanding what they do have on their plate, if you can see that people are going into that space of, oh, my God, I can't do this or I don't feel as though there's too much going on, it's about just checking in and having that conversation with them. So I think the more that we're communicating with people about their expectations, do they understand, paraphrase back to me what I've asked you to do and then working through the overwhelm if it's there and where we do need to provide help. 
because leaders have got so many competing priorities, there's so much being thrown at them, there can be a tendency to just, you know, fire off tasks to people, do this, do this, do this. And it's a little bit ambiguous in terms of what we might be asking people to do. So I think it's twofold. It's about being really, really clear in the communication, but also having that self-awareness about how what we're asking people to do is actually impacting on them. Do you think from your experience that a lot of people who suffer from this um, busyness syndrome, if I call it that, I may describe as people pleasers, so people who want other people to like them, they want to impress other people, and it's not so much that the things are so important, it's just their personality traits, um, and, and perhaps these sort of people end up being good workers in corporate and, and very liked because they they get done all the things that their manager wants to get done. So they are a very popular person. They're a go-to person because they are going to get it done. And they don't need much instruction to to want to get it done and to want to get it done um, quickly. So everything mm-hmm. comes across as as urgent to them. Do you think that's a big category of people who suffer from this busyness syndrome? Yes, our poor people pleasers. And <laughs> I must say, I'm a bit of a recovering people pleaser. This is really, really, really common. And I have identified there's eight different types of busy that we can actually do, that we can fall into and we can circle through. So if I start with there's the people pleaser, which I'll circle back to, there's the snapper, there's the the FOMO, so the fear of missing out, there's a control freak, there's a disorganized the comfort zoner, um, the badge of honour, and I think we all know them. There's the dramatic, which is where I sit as well in terms of just flapping about. But the people pleaser is a really interesting space because there there are a lot of them in organisations and also you'll see them in your personal lives as well. It's those people who say yes to everything because they do have this deep need of wanting to help and of wanting to be liked. So they'll put their hand up, take everything on. They want to please all around them and all above them and all below them. And they can then get to a space of complete overwhelm because what does the people pleaser do when they need help? They're the ones that that put up their hand and take everything. They're not necessarily the ones that will put up their hand and ask for help. And People pleasers can also commonly do things out of a complete misguided sense of obligation rather than doing things for themselves. And there can be a lot of guilt that's involved with um, people pleasers in saying that magic word of no and also of putting themselves first and understanding that they're a priority. It's not always about everyone else. It needs to be about you first so that you can then serve everyone else better. So, yeah, people pleaser is a massive, massive category that definitely feeds into the whole busyness overwhelm and can create a lot of drama. And I think that the people pleasing has benefits too, right? In terms of you're expanding your influence by helping different people. So becoming the go-to person, you build a network pretty quickly in terms of, you know, you can ask people for help because you've helped them and you're kind of building that relationships by by doing this. So there is a positive side to it. 
and I think there's a lot of benefits, but there comes a point where you can't do everything, right? And I've heard it often said that as a, when you're early in your career, you should be saying yes to everything, right? Because that's the point where you're still developing, you're learning, you're building, right? But it gets to a point where your capacity now is maxed out and you just cannot say yes to one person without saying no to someone else, even if it's, you know, just by the virtue of the fact that you just don't have time to get to everything. So there's a point where they need to learn to say no. And, you know, and this would be probably be similar to your own experiences as a recovering people pleaser, but how do you start saying no? Like what has helped you to start saying no? Mm. And it, saying no can be a really uncomfortable space. I remember seeing Naomi Simpson speak. She's from Red Balloon. And I remember she, she was saying no is a statement. No that's all you have to say. It's like you don't have to follow it up with some convoluted justification. And in my case, I used to follow it up my no with an excuse and it may have been embellished and then I may forget about it and get caught out. <laughs> it wasn't necessarily a good space. I think yeah. with, the, with the people pleasers, and I think this is busy in, in general, sometimes we can lose connection with who we are at the core and who, what our values are and what we want to be known for. So I really encourage people to think about what do you want to be known for? The last thing I want to leave is a legacy of busy. So I don't want to be known as busy. I want to be known as something so much more than busy. Do you want to be known as more than the yes person? Do you want to be known as more than someone who others just dump on? for their own benefit because they're flying high, but you, you're weighed down with the weight of expectation. So I think, again, it's, it's getting that clarity and connecting back to you in terms of who you are, what your values are, and understanding what's really important to you. Again, back to those priorities. It, it all comes back to having clarity around the priorities. So what are the most important things that you should be doing you want to be doing that's going to enable you to be the best person that you can be for others like whether that's for your family or um, in a professional sense or even just in terms of how you're feeling commit to doing those and then it's like the big rock and the small rock scenario it's like understanding what your big rocks are and then fitting other things around it. But once you understand what your priorities are, you know what you can then say no to. So you're having, you know, intelligent, you're making intelligent decisions around what's important to you rather than just feeling like, oh, yeah, I should say yes to that. But if I say yes to that, then I'm not going to do that. So you're understanding the consequence of it as well. The way I phrase that is, as a people pleaser myself, every yes is a no to something else because as you say, there's only a certain amount of time in the day. So every yeah. yes therefore becomes a no to another um, alternative part. And I think one of my early learnings in my career as a people pleaser is I worked in a factory that had a lot of, lot of demands, a lot of challenges with people and trouble with people issues. And so there'd be a buildup of, I guess, me going yes, 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 all day long. And at lunchtime, so I'd be fully absorbed. I'd be saying yes to every single thing, running 100 miles an hour, be totally overloaded. At lunchtime, I would meet 
uh, a girl who was going to become my wife in the future, but not, not at this particular time. So at lunchtime, I'd meet her in the car park. And it would take the smallest little thing for me to, to then explode with someone who was safe. Mm. And, you know, I'd be taking it all day from people with much bigger things, much bigger issues, confronting challenges. But she would, she would walk, uh, walk up to my car happy, having a great time, and she might be a few minutes late. And I think just the fact that she was so relaxed, that she had so much time, she was having a great time, and she was a couple of minutes late, and I would just explode, you know, on someone who was really safe. Mm. And I think for me that was like a, a dangerous warning that why am I doing this? And as a people pleaser, there can be some bad negative behaviours that you can have once you get back to that safe company. Yeah, I agree. And it's, again, it's so in terms of your getting to that point of, you know, exploding, it's understanding that this whole busyness and just constantly doing and saying yeses and going into this over, it's not sustainable. So there is a point in time where this does lead to, you know, mental health issues, to behavioural issues, to um, health issues. I know when I started my own business, I got into this whole spiral of busy and working really late and getting up early and it got to that I was completely exhausted but I felt like I had to do it. So it's it's just not sustainable. And I'm not a massive fan of work-life balance concept. I believe we have one life and we need to make it work for us. But it, it, and it's understanding what works for you. But, yeah, the whole saying yes constantly can absolutely cause enormous amounts of stress, anxiety, and yeah, complete overwhelm to the point where you're just like, boom. And um, anyone <laughs> in your vicinity is like, oh my God. Another type of busy that you mentioned there was control freak. And I was thinking, especially like, for example, say as a manager. And so typically this would come out as micromanagement, right? Where you'd want to be across everything and you want to know all the details and you don't want to give up that control. and I would imagine that would keep you quite busy um, if you have to try to keep across everything in your team. What advice do you give to managers who kind of fall in this control freak type of busy? Yes, yes. And this is probably a space where I hang out a little bit too, but understood when I took over a very large team that, you know, I couldn't do everything. So I did have to empower my team. So I think for leaders, when they're delegating, in that delegation is not abdication. It's like you just can't throw a task to someone and expect that it's going to get done because sometimes it's not. It's really understanding a, a, real, a good process in terms of delegating to make sure that the leader still feels like they have a sense of control. So you still need to understand what's going on, right, as a leader. You still need to have your finger on the pulse. You don't need to be part of the actual doing of that task. But you need to understand, okay, so if I'm delegating a task to Devan, then where do I need to have a touch point with him to understand how this task is going when is it due by? Do I need to review the task to make sure 
that it's that I'm happy with it, say before it goes out to a client, for example. Uh, I work with um, some architects, so it's you know, what point in time do I need to review the drawings before it gets sent to the client to make sure that they're right? But it, it's understanding that and not just saying, Devon, I need you to do this by Friday, 5 o'clock, and then waiting for Friday 5 o'clock and expecting that to be done because sometimes that does not happen. So it's just in enabling yourself to have that sense of control. So for me, I always delegated a task with a time frame and a check-in point in between. It's like, you know, I want you to come back to me at this time and tell me how you're going with this task. And I might need people to show me or, you know, send me a draft of what they're doing, but also holding people accountable to that. So the accountability piece is really important because if you're not holding people accountable to the tasks that you're delegating and then they don't do it and then again you delegate another task, it doesn't happen again, you're setting up a behaviour, a precedent there that it's okay for people not to do things. That accountability piece is really, really important for leaders to stay on top of as well, whether you put notes in your diary to remember what you you know what you've got due who's doing what whatever you use in terms of managing workflow but just to stay on top of that's really important too so if the task say doesn't get done in the time frame right would that be an indicator that maybe they are overloaded themselves and they are busy and because and the reason i ask that is often I would kind of, maybe I fall into this trap a lot, is I would kind of see that. I'm like, okay, so clearly they're overloaded. Maybe I need to step in and protect them from work that's coming. Instead of delegating, maybe I need to kind of do it myself because obviously they're overloaded and I don't want to overload them any further. I mean, how do we kind of navigate that tension? Because I think that can also have negative consequences. It can come across as your, your intention could be to protect, but that might not be the way it comes across to the other person. Yeah, because again, it's all about perception. And I think in this space, it always comes back to communication. So using personal example, again, if someone didn't meet a time frame, I'd sit down with them and you know, what prevented you from meeting this time frame? Let's have a look at exactly what's going on here. Is it a capability issue? Is it a time issue? Is it a, a workload issue? What is it? I think by having these conversations, where you're not asking people why they haven't done it. Like why just evokes a justification and it can bring up the defences. Why didn't you juice? Oh, well, I was busy. Well, not a good conversation. <laughs> Whereas if it's like yeah. what prevented you from meeting this time frame, I, I need to understand what's going on, you as a leader, you can then identify, okay, I need to train this person, I need to help this person with time management, okay, this person is completely overwhelmed, I need to help them to work out their priorities and you can, you know, then determine the conversation that you need to have. And if they just haven't done it, well, that's then informed your conversation in that that's not good enough and we don't want to see that again. What are you going to do differently to make sure that when I give you an expectation next time that you meet it? I think leaders need to be comfortable in having these types of conversations and not necessarily thinking they're going to be a confrontation and also not falling into that assumption trap that people operate the same way as you 
So it's like, oh, someone hasn't done it, so they must be busy or they must be overwhelmed. It's like, ask them, speak to them, get their intelligence, understand their space, and then that will inform your future action. Yeah, sometimes I think uh, we, we can assume they're not capable, but they're completely capable, and we can get it wrong by just having that fear that they can't do it. Uh, and so often in the parent-child relationship, but certainly in, at the age my children are at, I've been confronted with that a number of times with comments like, Dad, why don't you worry about yourself? Like, you know, you, you try to protect us too much. Leave me alone. I can do that. You just stay away. I don't, I don't need you. And, and children can be direct with it. And as the parent, you're purely trying to protect. I'm, you know, I've got a better way for you to do this or let me help you or let me take you or let me get involved. And some of my cheekier children were telling me, <laughs> we actually don't need you to do that. We, <laughs> it's better if you don't. And that's confronting. It also is a similar mistake I think leaders and managers make in the workplace where they think that the person can't do it mm. when they totally can and they want you to back off, which is, a, I guess, a reverse way of, of looking at that busy syndrome it's, yeah you know, we, don't, we don't want you to do it you doing it is insulting yeah exactly and and it's so i love your children mark they just give you the best messages but um it is <laughs> it is interesting in the space of leadership because you see so many leaders fall into that parent-child trap in that they they treat their team like their children and they do try and protect them and often you know re- reverting back to that control freak space where sometimes people just think that no one else can do this as well as they can so it's their way or the highway and now particularly with our generations coming through you know I think 50% of our workforce is now Gen Y and younger we've got to get smarter at leading and we've got to understand that your team are the ones on the ground they see what's going on. They have so much intelligence. So it's about getting the extracting that intelligence from them in terms of what they're really good at and playing to people's strengths, like play to their strengths, give them the task, empower them, enable them to grow and see, you know, what a great career looks like for them in our organizations. We've got to be better at doing that, I think. But understanding the reward that a leader gets from that, like if your team's successful, you are successful, like make your life easier and empower your team to be the best that they can be. Because like you say, it's not like you're just dumping a task and delegating it and expecting it to be done. And especially if you need to empower them and train them, often it can, you can fall into the trap of thinking it's going to be quicker if I do it because I know how to do it. I know exactly what's needed. I can do it in five minutes where if I have to kind of show them how to do it, it'll take me at least an hour to explain and to train them, et cetera. But I think it's really the difference between investing time and spending time, right? Because you can spend it five minutes every time, but you can, or you can invest the time up front and then they can do it themselves later, right? But I also want to ask you, because you, you do deal with a lot of leaders and you do you help a lot of leaders, um, especially, I think, in their own businesses. And I would imagine that a lot of people would start businesses and they'd be technically very good. And the reason that they've started the company is because they have this idea that they've been able to execute and bring to life. And now they're bringing in people and they have to get the other people to now do the same kind of activities. But they might not have those, say, people mm. skills or those leadership skills. What are the kind of things that you help them with if they fall in that category where they're technically very good, 
but maybe lack the kind of people skills to really get the best out of their people. Yeah. Yes. And I do work with a lot of so the entrepreneurs who have grown their business. So they've been technically smart. And it can be quite confronting sometimes when the people management space isn't necessarily your thing. Some people just will put their hand up and say, I'm not good at that and will outsource it. And others will want to learn about it. So it's understanding that it's an emotional intelligence component that is going to make you really successful with people leadership. And when you are building a team, the people are the power in your business now. It's not about you. It's about them. They're the ones who are going to achieve your growth, get your uh, revenue. They're the ones who are going to keep your clients happy. So investing in them is critically important. But one thing I'm really, really passionate about in this space is if you are going to be getting help for your leadership, you need to be getting that from someone who has walked in your shoes. Because if you're getting advice from people who are simply reading from a textbook or, you know, they've read the latest John Maxwell book, who's a leadership guru, and these are the things that he says, that's not going to help you because you need to understand the dynamics of leadership, the dynamics of people, understanding the alignment between expectations and how that makes a massive difference and also the impact that you can have on others. So it's really engaging the help of those who have walked in your shoes and have the experience with it. I've just seen things go completely pear-shaped where people come in and they proclaim that they can help you in the people space and it just goes completely wrong and you sort of in a worse place than you were before you started. So that's something that I really encourage people to do. But getting a mentor, as I said, getting the training and getting help from your team, like in terms of asking for feedback from your team, like, you know, how do you think I'm going as a leader? What are the things you think I do well? What are the things you think I can improve? What do you need from me? as a leader and just getting some intelligence around your your impact I think is it could be a brave thing to do (laughs) sometimes you're not necessarily going to like what you hear but I think a leader who actually asks for feedback is a leader who is really committed to being the best leader that they can be coming from the from your team, whether you do that verbally with them or just ask them to complete a really simple survey is a real positive. But I think also taking time out and reflecting on who are you as a leader? Like what are the things that anchor you as a leader? Who do you, um, how are you leading? Just carving time out of your day to think about that is a really, really good strategy in terms of being an effective leader. I think there was a study, I, I can't recall it, but it's the, the best leaders are the ones who are intentional about their leadership. It's the the ones that actually are thinking about it. Whereas I think typically you can just go into autopilot and just assume that, you know, everyone knows what they're doing or should be doing. And you don't really give much thought to the leadership side because it's a soft skill. It's not something that's important, but it's just interesting that it, it doesn't really matter. There's not a single skill that kind of stands out that makes a good leader. But the thing that they have in common is they're intentional about it, whether it's knowing what your strengths are and how to apply it or getting, you know, that feedback. I think that's a really 
good way to kind of start that journey because advice can be very generic but it's like each of us has our own strengths and it's not about kind of covering up the weakness but really making the most of the strengths we already have i think is that kind of advice you'd kind of give is capitalize on the strengths or do you think working on weaknesses is worth doing i think a really good thing to think about is you know we're not good at everything so I think absolutely understanding and having clarity about what your strengths are and being able to leverage those and then being conscious of what you're maybe not so good at in line with if you sort of reflect back on okay so what are the ultimate goals that I'm trying to achieve here what are the outcomes that I'm trying to achieve what am I good at? So where do my strengths sort of fit into that? And then what do I need to recruit for in terms of to, you know, substitute for my strengths so that we're a well-rounded team of people? Sometimes leaders can fall into the trap of recruiting people who are the same as them, who are, you know, good at the same things. Whereas if we get people who are different and um, with different experiences, different skills, of course, then you're going to have a much more diverse and a much more dynamic team. So I think being play to your strengths for sure, being have a lot of clarity around that and be really conscious of it and also understanding, okay, so where are my gaps? Where do I need to fill those gaps and who can I fill them with? You, you mentioned that you had a story about Gary and I, oh. I realized we didn't get around to it. Could, could you share the story um, about Gary? Oh, poor Gary. So his name has been changed to protect him. (laughs) 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 Poor Gary. So he was an early client when I started in my um, business and he was always busy. Like he was the busiest man on the planet was Gary. But he was the leader of a sales team and he wasn't achieving his results. I said to him, okay, this is not making sense to me. I need to understand what you're busy doing. So we sat down and we understood what busy, uh, what Gary was busy doing. And he was busy, you know, he'd get up, he'd read the newspaper, he'd have his coffee, put in a few calls. So it was a very relaxing morning, which is fine. I have no issue with that. And then he gets caught, you know, absorbed into the back-to-back meetings and it was just constant. And then he'd jump out of that and respond to whatever happened within those hours of the meetings. He'd respond to the gazillion emails that are in his inbox and then he'd drive home late at night feeling really exhausted. But he felt like he was busy, right? So he must be ticking all the boxes, whereas where he understood what he was actually busy doing and it was absolutely not the tasks he should be doing, he realised that he needed to make a change. So once he understood that he needed to use his time a lot more effectively and there was a lot more coaching conversations with his team to upskill them, there was the business development activities he was doing, the client relationship building activities. He would limit the amount of time in meetings. So he's really guarded with his time. He had X amount of time for meetings and they weren't back to back and they were agended. He also had allocated times in terms of responding to his emails. He also understood what he needed to do in terms of energizing himself so making sure that he stuck to his daily exercise routine that he had lunch and that he was able to finish at particular times in the day to spend time with his family which is what he was missing out on 
So that shift in terms of understanding his priorities and using his time really enabled his results to skyrocket. But it wasn't only that. It was that he felt a lot more in control and so much better and energized at about what he was doing rather than just being completely reactive to what was going on around him. So, yep, poor old Gaza, he was busy, but he wasn't busy doing the right things for him or for his business. So, again, it just goes back to ticking that busy box. You can definitely be busy, but it may not be working for you. It sounds so simple when you explain it the way it is. <laughs> and, and, and and I say that in a way and, and it sounds so simple and I think a lot of us busy people know how simple it is and know what we should do. I think that's what keeps you in business. <laughs> but we don't do it. <laughs> just like that the thing with everything? We always know what we should be doing. It's just we, when we're in it, we can't necessarily see it. Spot on. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we can all relate to Gary, to be honest. I mean, I certainly can. And the the thing that actually, for me personally, I'm I'm thinking the hardest part is really, I think there's like a a fear of judgment, perhaps, of Mm. what are people going to think when I say no or decline this meeting Mm. or, you know, that kind of judgment that you kind of feel like I've got to push back to someone who, you know, they're not my boss, but they might like this. And that's certain kind of same kind of leadership level you know so but it's not like i have that same relationship like with my manager where i can just say okay what are my priorities pushing back on people like that is like you kind of feel that kind of fear and i think a lot of it for me i find comes from a place of fear of judgment perception they're Mm -hmm. not going to think i'm good enough they're not going to think i'm lazy all that kind of thing How, how did you help gary with that part of it like was that a feature at all Gary was not necessarily worrying what people thought about him however people do worry about that and have that fear about it. And I think it's understanding that that's in your head. That's what's playing out in your mind. So, again, it comes back to being really, really clear on what your priorities are, um, being really clear on whether it's who you are as a leader or who you are as a professional and what you want to be known for to enable you to be a bit more confident in saying no to particular things. And I always find it really interesting in that if a client meeting is booked in your diary and someone wants to hijack that, we guard that generally 100% of the time. It's like, no, I'm sorry, I can't do it at that time. I can do it another time. But when we've got other stuff booked in, it's like we're okay to shift it. So why why is that client time so like golden as opposed to everything else that we're doing. I just I find that really interesting in business because it's the same principle if your phone rings, you're never going to pick that up in front of a client or I hope you just would not do that. But <laughs> whereas for leaders, sometimes if they're in a team meeting, they'll answer their phone. It's like, where, what's that? There's a, there's a message there. I think that's something else to explore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very true. Look, I think it's about time to wrap up. Before we do, how could people uh, find out more about you or what you do or reach out to you if they want to connect? I think the best space is via my website, juliehyde.com.au. Also on LinkedIn, I share lots of insights and (laughs) daily posts on there. I think they're the best places to contact me. 
Uh, thanks again, Julie. This was a, a really good conversation. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us today. Oh, it's been awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Candle Communication Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think about this episode. You can connect with us by visiting our website, candlepodcast.com, where you can find show notes for this episode, or you can connect through our social media pages on Facebook or LinkedIn. Also, please remember to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It really helps us to get the word out. Thanks. See you next time.